Warriors podcast. I am Max. I am Rich. And on this podcast, we normally focus on the Weird War Tales comic book series published by DC Comics from 1971 to 1983. However, this time around, we're going on a special mission. We're going back to the future of the Weird War Tales series and back to our past, to 1997, for a redeployment episode. That's right, folks. We're taking a look at Weird War Tales number three from, as I mentioned, 1997. But first, before we get down to the late 90s business, Rich is going to hit you with some retroactive history. Happy 2023! At least it is when we record this. To celebrate the new year, we are proud to announce that we have an official show mascot. The time-traveling mouse from WWT11. We call him Timmy Timer. Timmy for short. And I am now formally obligated to give you all the South Park. Timmy! Go look at the photo of the little guy in the album. He's so cute! So let's break down the new stuff, shall we? Hey! In Weird War Tales 29's Breaking Point, I talked about how many assassination attempts Hitler had survived over the course of the war alone. While reading Berlin Diary by William Shire, I learned about the efforts of Jörg Elzer. Johann Jörg Elzer was a German worker who planned and carried out an elaborate assassination attempt on Adolf Hitler and other high-ranking Nazi leaders on November 8th, 1939 at the Burger Brawl Keller in Munich. Elser constructed and placed a bomb near the platform from which Hitler was to deliver a speech celebrating the anniversary of 1923's Beer Hall Push. Hitler cut his speech short due to weather and left only 13 minutes before detonation, but the blast still killed eight and injured 62 others. Elser was apprehended that night with bomb-making parts on his person. He was held as a prisoner at Dachau for more than five years. Berlin Diary was published in 1941 before the U.S. was even in the war and I had to do further research to discover his fate. On April 9th, 1945, only a month before the war in Europe ended, Elzer was executed by firing squad at the age of 42, and his body promptly immolated in the camp's crematorium. In contrast to the July 20th, 1944 conspirators, Elzer's efforts weren't acknowledged by Germany until 2001. Today, in Germany and Austria, there are several monuments and streets named in his honor. There are also movies, musicals, and awards keeping the memory of his bravery alive. B, the Weird Warriors podcast giveaway update. That's not too hard of a change in direction now, is it? As of this recording, there were still no correct answer, even after I had given you fine listeners the additional hints. Originally, you only had to get them both to win, but now I'll settle for one. I met one of them, but obviously not the other one. So I'm going to run up the white flag and give you one of said two creators at the end of the show. Spoiler alert, in case you still want to try to figure it out. And I hope you haven't been checking the Facebook page. C. Moving on in the execution of this show, I use the Weird War Tales section of the Great Comics database quite often. Issue 36 was lacking in creator detail for the Weird War maze at the back of the issue that Bob Rosakis did the script for. As noted in that show, that maze is a partial reprint of the cover issue 28 by Luis Dominguez, Island of Forgotten Warriors. I added that info to the issue in question for review, and last week it was approved. Once again, dear listeners, the Weird Warriors podcast is here to improve your overall comics experience. And for a few of the proof of that, there's more of the dead letter office. You'll see. Intel report. Nom Wolf. A four-issue miniseries by Albatross Funny Books from 2017 that I found in a bound collection the day before I wrote this. 
written by Fabian Wrangle Jr., art by Logan Ferber. When scrawny Marty Spencer is drafted into the Vietnam War, he finds himself smack dab in the heart of darkness. But Marty has a secret, a secret even from himself. And Vietnam is a hell of a place to find out you're a werewolf. That was fun, by the way. I enjoyed that one. We've done this twice before, so we got to keep it moving. Title details. The 1997 run of WWT was a four-issue miniseries by DC Vertigo with mature subject matter. We're halfway through the six total redeployment issues of Weird War Tales that included two extra-sized one-shots in 2010. All right, there you go. Now, before we dive in and officially start that second half of our redeployment mission, we're going to take a little break and let you guys check out another really cool podcast out there that you might want to listen to after you're done listening to this one, of course. And when we get back, Rich will hit you with the cover detail for this issue. Do you like comics? The 1960s? How about middle-aged gay couples gossiping about their neighbors? Then you'll love Checkered Past. A loving examination of DC's GoGo Check branded comic magazines published from February 1966 to August 1967. I'm Dr. Bob. And I'm Dr. Husband. And each week we'll be your hosts on a trippy tour through mid-century four-color madness. Checkered Past. Available wherever fine podcasts are downloaded for free. And we're back. And as I mentioned before the break... We are going to now dive into the issue at hand, which is Weird War Tales number three from 1997. And Rich is here, as always, with the cover detail. Art by Richard Corbin. Price, $2.50. The Black Weird War Tales title, War Tales and Stenciling, Weird in a Weird Font, rests on a red sky. The huge orange moon as a backdrop. Five robots perfectly channeled the World War II Iwo Jima flag-raising photo by Joe Rosenthal. Two dead human soldiers lie at their feet. Cover date, August 1997. Date of release, June 18th, 1997. Killjoy, eh, it's a sci-fi cover, so nothing. All right, comments and commendations. I'll kick it off and uh, get ready for a sentiment that I will repeat throughout the episode, folks. I am a fan of Richard Corbin. I am not, however, a fan of this cover. It just kind of sits there. The color scheme, to me, is kind of bland. The background does nothing to make up for it. It's barely even present. And the foreground figures are lifeless in more ways than were intended. Insert robot joke. It's not enough to just go, hey, it's that Iwo Jima moment especially because homages to that moment have been done a million times. If you're going to do it again, put something into it. This feels like it was a paycheck for Corbin, and I am sad that it exists. Other than that, great start. It goes without saying that I included a photo of the Iwo Jima event in the album. One of the most famous photos of the war, the officially named Marine Corps War Memorial was dedicated on the Marine Corps birthday in 1954 near Arlington National Cemetery. I personally have nothing bad to say about this at all. This is great. Nowhere near as good as issue two for the WWT redeployment, but hey, nothing is. All right, the cover showdown out of the way. Get ready for the rest of the issue showdown, people, as Rich is going to take you into the first new story here. New Toys, nine pages, script by Grant Morrison, 
Art by Frank Quitely. A young girl sleeps in a room filled with toys, cuddling a teddy bear. But if you look out her window, there's a war going on outside between two groups of toys as savage as any man has ever fought. A G.I. Joe-type soldier doll wearing the uniform of a British sergeant is talking. He's never named, so we'll just call him Joe for convenience. The guns and the bombs, the explosions and wars. Jesus, don't you get it? It was all to keep us busy. The fighting was a diversion. They want us to keep fighting. As long as we keep fighting, we can't see what's happening to us. We can't see them. I've always been a good soldier. You can check my service record. I've always obeyed orders without question. But that day changed everything. Maybe it was just the last straw for me. The day before, I'd found one of my buddies chopped bits. He couldn't stop crying and just kept saying, New toys, new toys, over and over until he died. Or maybe it was the new intensity, the violence, the madness. It didn't used to be like this, did it? I saw men's bodies cooking. I stumbled through the choking, oily fumes of burning flesh and hair, wondering how I'd managed to survive this, this holocaust. That smell, it sticks, it drives you insane. Mountains of flesh like sludge, burned, men burned in drifts. I saw things nobody should ever have to see. Severed heads in the muck, still talking. One soldier crucified to another and hung from a tree. Joe staggers through a hellscape of melting and destroyed toys. Believe me, that shit's going to make you crazy. My mind just went AWOL. It just... Anyway, I guess it must have been airlifted out of there. I remember floating up in the smoke over the battlefield. I thought I saw an angel's face above me, but that must have been the craziness. A child's hand picks Joe off the ground and puts him to bed in a dollhouse. Whoever they were, they brought me into some sort of hospital, a sanatorium or a convalescent home. And for a long time, I just lay in bed, and there was no shouting anymore. There were no explosions, except the ones that went off in my head, and it woke me up at three in the morning. Slowly, the war began to recede. Joe sits across the table from a well-dressed Barbie doll over tea. And then I met a woman in the hospital. I'm not too sure whether she worked there or if she would own the place, but I began to see her nearly every day. She seemed kind of out of my league at first, but as I got to know her, and we realized how much we had in common, well, one thing led to another. They make love. You know how it goes. I don't think I was ever so happy. Joe was wearing a pink dress. Okay, so things got a little strange around that, but that was post-traumatic stress syndrome. Thing is, she didn't seem to mind, and I was starting to realize there was a world beyond endless, repetitive war and violence, a war where I could do anything. And then it happened. One morning, the most important thing in my life was gone, replaced by one of them, the new toys. They're real, whatever they are. They're real. And they'd taken the woman I loved and left something in her place. I knew that I would be next, that all of us would be next. I had to escape. Joe, still in the pink dress, falls out the second floor window as the little girl watches. He runs until he finds toy soldiers. Don't you see what I'm trying to say? That's how it was when you found me. I could have done anything, but I came back to warn you. I'm not a deserter. You can't do this to me. It happened just like I told you. It happens. It's happening right now. The new toys are coming. I woke up and saw us for what we are, and I saw one of them and... Christ, I know this sounds crazy. <laughs> the commander doesn't buy it. I've heard men try to justify cowardice before, but you don't know when to stop. If I could court-martial you ten times over, I'd do it, soldier. We're at war. Firing squad. Dawn. Joe spends the night sitting in a cardboard box. In the morning, Joe is led out with a bag over his head and is tied to a pole in the garden that's used to support vines. If even one of you would listen to me, we might have a chance of stopping them. We're being replaced. We think we're men, but we're nothing but playthings. And the new toys are here. It could be next. 
It could be you next or you. Just stop fighting for a second and you'll hear them. Let the smoke clear and you'll see them. Stop being soldiers. Stop doing what you're told and you'll start to see them. The commander ignores them as the firing squad raises their weapons. Enough of this historical bullshit. Let's see some dignity, soldier. Shut up. We've been fighting the wrong enemy. You've got to stop them. The new toys. Just look. The commander gives the command the fire and Joe sags at an awkward angle against the pole. The viewer backs away from the sight of the broken doll through the little girl's window. The guns and the bombs, the explosions and wars. Jesus, don't you get it? It was all just to keep us busy. The fighting was a diversion. They want to keep us to keep fighting. And when we're fighting, we can't see what's happening to us. We can't see them. And in the room, half of the girl's toys, including the teddy bear she was cuddling with before, are horrifying insect creatures. I don't see any killjoy with this, so I'll just lunge into my CNC. Everyone should have immediately had some sort of Toy Story vibe with this one, which came out in 1995. That vibe should have, should have strengthened later to recall Buzz Lightyear at the tea party dressed as Mrs. Nesbitt when the narrator appeared in his very best Maxwell Q. Clear pink dress. Yeah, this one is a bit creepy. If, if you look at the splash page and the last page, it's the same except for where there were toys on page one, those bug creatures have replaced them on the last page. They'll both be in the album. There's just a lot going on here. The emotionless faces of the toys, Joe's frustration that no one will believe him, and honestly, the dignity being executed wearing a pink dress with spaghetti straps. This is what I expected from Grant Morrison. For two panel callouts other than pages one and nine, page two, panel five of Joe, staggering past the melting torso of a doll, and page seven, panel four, the executed Joe sagging forward against the pole, his legs at unnatural angles. All of page eight is well done, too. The classic camera pan away from Joe's body, back through the little girl's bedroom and into her room. My CNC uh, is going to start out with me saying, you got a lot more out of this one than I did. And as I hinted at the top, that statement's kind of going to repeat itself a couple more times before the episode is over. So as I've said before on this show, I'm a Grant Morrison fan. I am, however, not a Grant Morrison fanatic, and this story is a good example of why. When Grant is on, they're on, but when they're off, yeesh. I, I just don't know if there was a story buried in here somewhere. There was a chain of events, sure, but was there a message? Was there a point? I mean, was there a message beyond just the one that's rattled off as a sentence fragment now and then? They want us distracted and fighting so they can replace us with new toys. That's a concept with potential, but it all just kind of flops around in these pages. Yes, the violence of war increases. Joe escapes it, recovers. They replace his Barbie nurse with one of the new toys and execute him for desertion while he's wearing a dress. And on that point, Grant to this day, and even back when the story was published, is an example of, to me, of what happens to all of us that consider ourselves to be progressive. Eventually, you stop progressing and your evolved opinions become just as dated and arcane as the ones you rebelled against. I mean, Joe's dress-wearing panels are introduced by, okay, things got a little strange then, and his military uniform is exchanged for a pink dress. Ooh, controversial. I'm sure this would have felt like a bit of pointless edge lordery to me, even back in the late 90s. But who's to say for sure? It definitely adds very little to the story here, other than perhaps reinforcing gender stereotypes that 
being against war is feminine, etc. And getting back to the overall message of the story, what are the new toys? Shadowy bug monsters. Is that supposed to mean something? What is that an equivalent to? What's the metaphor? There's a sketch of an idea here with some decent, but even kind of utilitarian art by Frank Quitely standards. I agree. Some of the use of page design in that is up to his standards, but but for him, this is pretty pedestrian stuff, I feel. It, it does bolster the story a bit, but it's this kind of work that lends some credence to those who say that Grant Morrison strikes them as being kind of overly impressed with themselves. So, so far, this issue, we've got, in my opinion, a lame cover from a master and a lazy first draft of an opening story by two creators that are more than capable of being called the same. It's, for me, a pretty frustratingly bad start to this issue. So let's see if we can fix that by moving on to the second story in this issue. It is called Sniper's Alley, and it's by two people I've never heard of outside this issue. Script is by Joel Rose, and art is by Eric Cherry. Synopsis of Sniper's Alley goes like this. Sarajevo, winter, 1994. And I'm going to mangle the pronunciation, I have no doubt. Bejo Villadana is a quote that calls the shattered city his home. The Serbs are engaged in ethnic cleansing and their snipers are paid by the head. 20 dinars for a man, twice that for a woman or child. Nice, huh? Bejo is an anti-sniper. He waits for the crack of the sniper's rifle, then finds and kills that sniper. So he's a counter sniper, you know. In another life, he'd been a cheese salesman. Now he's nothing but a finger on a trigger and an eye on a sight. He'll wait all day to get his shot. Every day for the last 13 months, a single Chetnik sniper had come down from the hills and killed at least one woman or child for his trouble. Bejo, or Bejo, I'm going to keep saying Bejo, recognized the sound of the rifle. It belonged to his brother-in-law and best friend, Tariq. Tariq, I'm going to say Tariq. There was no one in Sarajevo that could shoot like Tariq, except Bejo. How many competitions had they won together? How many trophies earned? All their spare time was spent together. Shooting, drinking, joking, never a crossword between them. You are a Serb, I am a Croat. It didn't matter. And Layla, Tariq's beautiful sister, the love of Bejo's life. Every time he returned from the range, he'd bring a gift to the waiting Layla. Layla pronounced to love him forever and a day. Nothing more, nothing less. But two months before the war, rumors swirling. Tariq and Layla vanished without a word. Four months later, war raging, Layla called. He was in the mountains with the Chetniks, and they would never speak again. Never. She had been true to her word. The crack of a rifle breaks Bejo from his reverie. A woman lies dead in the street below, groceries scattered around her. Chewing on an unlit cigarette, Bejo rapidly scans the surrounding buildings through his rifle's sight, and he sees the shadow of a man on a rooftop across the street. It's Tariq. Sooner or later, he was bound to get clumsy. Bejo places his crosshairs on Tariq's chest and fires. Blood fountains and Tariq goes down, but he's not dead. The second shot is always the most dangerous, 
If the Chetniks have a second sniper in position, and they probably do, a second round would give away his own position. But Tariq is worth the risk. Beho fires again, and the round rips through Tariq's torso, finishing him off. A second shot rips through Beho's chest from behind, sending him sprawling. Stunned and dying, Beho has to admit that was a great shot. There were only two men in Sarajevo that could make that shot, but neither one had. They were both lying there about to die or dead. He waits for the killing shot, but it never comes. Steam wisping from his wound, Beho rolls over, grabs his rifle, and sits up. He starts scanning the surrounding buildings through his sight and finds the second sniper on a balcony above and behind him. He focuses on the target and is horrified to recognize Layla holding a rifle, his darling Layla. For a few seconds, he lowers the rifle as memories of happier times pass through his mind. I guess forever and a day has arrived, he muses. A toast, my love, to us. Beho raises his rifle and fires. That's the end. And Rich is going to come riding in with a couple shots of his own in a Killjoy History Minute segment. By far the biggest gaffe in the book, not that there are many, all of the snipers portrayed here are using what appears to be some manner of 8K47 platform, which is ridiculous. <laughs> Maximum effective range of an 8K is about 300 meters, which is nothing for a sniper. The Dragunov SVD rifle can reach out to 800 meters easy. The pros like these guys can hit out to 1,300 with it. Hell, World War II era was on a bolt-action rifle with optics as accurate to 800 meters. We had the internet in 1997, people. Use it. Now, to the war. Sniper Alley was the informal name primarily for Zmaga Od Bosnia Street, Dragon of Bosnia Street, and Mesa Slinovic Boulevard, the main boulevard in Sarajevo, which during the Bosnian War was lined with Serbian snipers' posts became infamous as a dangerous place for civilians to traverse. The road connects the industrial part of the city, and further on, Sarajevo Airport, to the old town's cultural and historic sites. The boulevard itself has many high-rise buildings, giving snipers extensive fields of fire. Mountains surrounding the city were also used for sniper positions, providing a safe distance and giving an excellent view of the city and its traffic. Although the city was under constant Serb siege, its people still had to move about the city in order to survive thus routinely risking their lives. Signs reading, Pozni Snaper, watch out, sniper, became common. People would either run fast across the street or would wait for United Nations armored vehicles and walk behind them using them as shields. According to the data gathered in 1995, the snipers wounded 1,030 people and killed 225, 60 of whom were children. The siege itself lasted 1,425 days, three times longer than the Battle of Stalingrad, more than a year longer than the siege of Leningrad, a few months longer than the siege of Madrid during the Spanish Civil War, and was the longest siege of a capital city in the history of modern warfare. A total of 13,952 people were killed during the siege, including 5,434 civilians. This was all just a tiny inner battle of the Yugoslav Wars, a series of separate but related ethnic conflicts, wars of independence, and insurgencies that took place in Yugoslavia from 1991 to 2001. Obviously, still ongoing when this story was written. Often described as Europe's deadliest armed conflict since World War II, Yugoslav wars were marked by many war crimes, including genocide, crimes against humanity, ethnic cleansing, and mass wartime rape, resulting in the deaths of over 140,000 people. 
yeah, the war in Ukraine will no doubt exceed these numbers in a much tighter time frame. Comments and commendations. Go out and reread Joe Kubert's Facts from Sarajevo. It's a nonfiction graphic novel published in 1996 by Dark Horse Comics. The book originated as a series of faxes from European comics agent Urban Rustajmajic during the Serbian siege of Sarajevo and the former Yugoslavia. Rustajmajic and his family, whose home and possessions in the suburb of Dobrinja were destroyed, spent one and a half years trapped in Sarajevo, communicating with the outside world via fax when they could. Friend and client Kubert was one recipient. Collaborating long distance, they collected Rustamagic's account of life during wartime, with Kubert turning the raw faxes into a somber comics tale that won both of the comics industry's two major accolades, the Eisner Award and Harvey Award. But to the story itself, this is a gritty cat and mouse tale of one sniper hunting another in a war-torn city. Some of the most personal combat there is. American Sniper, Enemy at the Gates, there are any number of movies out there that portray the tension behind The Hunt. The patience you need is astounding. No, really. Back to the story. Page one, panels one through four really capture the devastation. The graffiti on the wall on panel one, Opasan Sniper, translates from the croat to dangerous sniper. Panels two and four have makeshift cemeteries in them, which is something that's depressingly and distressingly common in Ukraine these days. Page five, panel one, the shock and pain in Behu's face as he gets sniped from behind, unlit cigarette going flying from his mouth. And panels four through six, as he drags himself to his knees and hunts for his color before he dies, are just freaking great. You know, maybe I was just in a bad mood, but I, I still don't, I, I don't feel like that's changing much. So maybe not. I'll say I really do hate to be the wet blanket all the time. Honest, I do. But well, spoiler alert, I'm going to do that again right here. I was going to pile even more criticism onto the opening story, but I saved this bit for this one and the next, as it's even more present here. The narration boxes in this story are stifling and filled with prose from what might maybe be good enough for a first-year creative writing class. On top of that, the plot is incredibly predictable, a fact that isn't helped in any way by the plotting, drawn-out pacing, the amateurish scripting, which I just mentioned, and the crowded, very close-up heavy art on the awkwardly laid out pages. Once again, the concept here is fertile ground and should be the source of some heavy, important storytelling. If you want some of that, though, go read Facts from Sarajevo or listen to uh, the, the synopsis that Rich wrote. The, as I was reading it, I was like, this sounds really cool. <laughs> you know? I would like to read that comic book story. So for those of you who don't have access to the issues, um, the, the synopses are sometimes even better. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so uh, with that, we will um, we will move on and let Rich finish off the story content in this issue that features one of uh, at least one of his own comic book heroes on the creative team. Run. Nine pages. Script by Paul Jenkins. Art by George Pratt. If you remember, George Pratt did that uh, on the ledge intro piece back in uh, issue one of the redeployment where he talks about the original series and stuff like that. Synopsis, June 30, 1916. Captain Harris peers out of his trench into no man's land. The big guns are sending iron rations over to the Bosch at over two shells a second. The men are tired and wretched, but have never been more willing to sacrifice life and limb for country. There's urgency in the air, a scent of adrenaline. 
The big push is coming. Descending into a bunker, Colonel Ash greets him. They're going over the top at 7.30 in the morning as a diversion from the French effort further down the line. More's the pity. Still, I'm sure they like to think it's their war, too. Ash sniffs as he drinks a glass of wine. Captain Harris reports that the Germans opposite their position have an Achilles heel. They're so deeply entrenched, it'll take them close to a minute to resurface and man their positions after the shelling stops. The British soldiers run across the battlefield. They can beat the Germans to the trenches. But Ash just drinks his wine. I do wish you wouldn't excite yourself so, Harris. This will be an early morning stroll in the park, no doubt. Very dignified. Leaving the bunker to go back to the village, Ash is displeased at the state of the trenches. For the time he returns, he expects the trench to look less like a French barracks. The problem with this war is that it's entirely too uncivilized. If he sees the body of one of his soldiers being carried off, he ignores it. Morning, 728. Captain Harris briefs his men to go over the top of the whistle and run like the bloody wind behind the shell fire. But Colonel Ash loudly interjects. A British soldier does not run dizzily into battle like some silly little girl with a skipping rope. You'll march your men across the field in proper order. Is that understood? Captain Harris is mortified. But then there's the whistle. Harris leads his men over the top and instructs them with a parched throat to fall in. And then you're marching, for God's sake, through death and debris and into hell itself. You're supposed to stay just a hundred yards behind the shelling, but you can only watch helplessly as the protective barrage runs from, away from you. Up ahead, the German trenches disappear in a cloud of mud and smoke. The acrid smell of cordite assaults your nostrils. And then, suddenly, there's only silence. The most terrifying sound you've ever heard. The larks scream defiance as the gun's roar echoes across the field. Ten seconds. The Germans will wonder briefly at the sudden lull, but then they'll realize what's happening. You should be running, firing, blood rushing in your ears, but all you could hear is a weary drawing of breath behind you and a trudging of boots through the thrice-turned earth. Tell them. Give the order. Save their lives. One word. One word taunts you from the dank, smoking air. It settles tantalizingly out of reach. One word. A hundred men want to see their mothers, wives, and children again. One bloody word. You can hear the clicking of rifle bolts coming from behind enemy lines. You can hear Germans whispering excitedly as they make ready for a duck shoot. Just say it. One word. Give the order. A German voice yells, Scheissen! And a burst of fire sweeps Captain Harris off his feet, and his men are quickly mowed down as well. You think you remember a dream you had last night. You saw the flag flying gloriously back home. As you remember it, you were awarded the cross for bravery under fire. Poor Matter will be so proud when she learns how well you died in battle. How you led England's charge with no thought given to life and limb. How you marched a hundred lambs to the slaughter on the whim of a madman. You're a captain of His Majesty's army. Don't say it. One word. Killjoy. History Minute. Picklehalm helmets, 1916 on the Germans, as noted numerous times before. BEFHQ is mentioned on page two. That's British Expeditionary Force Headquarters. And on page seven, the cross, the dying Harris refers to is the Victoria Cross, Britain's highest decoration for military valor, named after Queen Victoria. France had suffered a disastrous defeat in the Franco-Prussian War of 1870-1871. But by the beginning of World War I, France's national psyche had brought about a military doctrine that was based entirely on the presumed élan vital, a belief that its troops had so great an all-conquering spirit that little else was required. 
France's only strategy was to attack, and its operational doctrine ignored training, equipment, communications, and almost everything else required to win a then-modern war. When Elan was combined with mud, barbed wire, machine guns, artillery, and nice contrasting red trousers to give the Germans a good aiming point, the results should have been obvious. The French army would actually mutiny late in the war as a result of these futile tactics. At the beginning of the 20th century, British commanders favored mass formations of infantry leading their way in bayonet charges, supported by cavalry regiments and mobile field artillery. The British had extensively dealt with the guerrilla tactics from the Boers in the Boer War, thus rendering such charges useless. Despite this fact, the British military had not faced the modern machinery and weapons they employed on their unfortunate enemies, and were still comfortable using such outdated battlefield strategies. They had allowed the stiff upper lip pip pip cheerio attitudes the French had. The beginning of the end of such tactics was becoming evident towards the end of the U.S. Civil War. Certainly, the lessons should have been learned after the first few bloody months of trench warfare. But the general staffs on both sides were nothing if not set in their ways, using hopelessly outdated tactics. Read the 10 Incredible Charlie's War Collections if you really want to get frustrated. And as has been mentioned before in the show, I made the pilgrimage to Normandy, France in 2019. Afterwards, we drove up to Belgium and spent a few days in Ypres to get some World War I history in. And I'm here to tell you, our World War I experiences just about overtook the World War II ones. If I had to do it all over again, I'd probably spend more time in Flanders Fields. All war is a waste. But the Great War took it to historic levels. We visited Tyne Cot, the largest Commonwealth war grave cemetery in the world, where almost 12,000 are buried. Only about 3,600 are named. Honestly, you can't go down a back alley and but not find a smaller war cemetery. Menin Gate is a towering memorial to, in town dedicated to British and Commonwealth soldiers who were killed in the Ypres Salient and whose graves are unknown. Only 54,000 names are carved on the memorial, going up to August 15, 1917. Why did they stop there? Easy. They ran out of room. Close to 35,000 more names were carved in another memorial at Tyne Cot. Every night at 8 p.m., since the monument was dedicated in 1927, the road under the memorial is closed, and buglers play the last post in the Commonwealth version of Taps. There's often an accompanying piper that plays Flowers of the Forest, which is based on a Scottish folk tune and work of war poetry commemorating the defeat of the Scottish army and the death of James IV at the Battle of Flodden in September 1513. Due to the content of the lyrics and the reverence for its tune, it is one of the few tunes that many pipers will perform in public only at funerals or memorial services, with play otherwise limited to private practice or to instruct other pipers. I witnessed both at Menengate. Papyries are presented as hundreds watch. I'll post a video of the last post ceremony and photos of a lot of things I've talked about here in the album. The story begins on June 30th, 1916. The big push is coming. Indeed, one day later, on July 1st, the Somme offensive began further east of Ypres. Over the next four and a half months, the British suffered over 415,000 casualties. On July 1st alone, they suffered over 57,000 casualties, including, now, I'm going to pause and place the due emphasis required on the number here. Over 19,000 killed in one day. It's the bloodiest day in the history of the British Empire. In the end, they advanced all of six miles. 
The Nirvai Fall Memorial to the Missing of the Psalm is a war memorial to the over 72,000 Commonwealth troops with no known grave that fought in that area. So on just these two battlefields, we have 161,000 missing. Remains are found every year along the old lines during construction projects. So where am I going with this? At the end of the war, memorial plaques were issued to the next of kin of all British Empire Service personnel who were killed as a result of the war. The plaques, which could be described as large plaquettes, are about five inches in diameter, were cast in bronze, and came to be known as the dead man's penny because of the similarity in appearance to the much smaller penny coin. 1,355,000 plaques were issued, which used a total of 450 tons of bronze and continued to be issued yeah. into the 1930s to commemorate people who died as a consequence of the war. I have one issued in memory of Corporal Walter Rawlinson, who went missing in action at the Somme September 25th, 1916. His name is on the memorial feet ball, a physical reminder of the blood and loss of the Great War. Comets and combinations as if all that isn't enough. Pratt's art is very unique. It's super heavy on the inks, but it helps set such an appropriate dark mood that you're fine with it. As implied in the creator intro, George Pratt did a war idol. That was mentioned during the first issue of the redeployment issue, the enemy ace, phenomenal book. I still have a poster for that roll up on a shelf in the basement. The colors, inks also carry a message. The first five pages are a kind of blue wash, kind of implying that it's overcast or pre-dawn. The color in each page after it subtly changes. Page six goes to a more black and white feel. Seven is violent, rude, and nine has a coppery look to it, almost like an actual photo of the area. There are any number of panels I could call out for this story. Page four, panel five, the way Colonel Ash's eye stares out at you directly under the brim of his cap with the almost comical mustache on his lip. I hate this guy. He's literally sending you to your death, and he doesn't give a fuck over on page seven, panel two. The Germans on the heights observe the Tommies coming towards them and scramble to get ready. And sorry, man, all of pages eight and nine, as the British are mowed down by the Germans and lie dead and dying amongst the mud and barbed wire of no man's land. And going back to Colonel Ash, sniffing the wine in his glass and polishing it after draining it, arrogantly complaining that this war is entirely too uncivilized and mocking the French for thinking it was their war too. The overwhelming majority of the land war on the Western Front took place in France, you pompous ass. This story is incredible. You dwell on so many of the panels on this one, lest we forget. All right, well, my CNC going to provide a little bit of a counterpoint, probably because I don't have quite such a depth of appreciation for the events to, uh, displayed in the story. But first, as, as always, I, I remind people, I don't read the history minutes before we record i like rich to it's like i'm sitting down he's going to tell me a little story usually a very depressing horrifying story but i get to hear most of this for the first time and even if he's told me before i promise you i've forgotten by the time we're recording so again the history minute there just prompts all over this story in my opinion but i'll get on with my cnc i remember really liking pratt's work in the ace however I did not like it even a little bit as seen here on these pages. The monochrome washes of color that Rich mentioned, sure, they, they change and I could see them trying to do a mood with each one, but it just literally finishes washing out the already sketchy artwork on the page. The effect, I can see the intent, but for me, it just made the pages hard to want, it was hard for me to want to look at them, to go from panel to panel. 
everything was I was just kind of staring through a layer of mud. So on top of that, we got piles and piles of word balloons and narration. Now, I like a wordy comic book. Most of these old comics that we've been reading in the regular series are just that. But creators need to remember that the words are part of the visuals. Everything looks randomly slapped down here to me with no mind to how the words pair with the layouts of the drawings and the pages and so on. And the, the words in themselves got off to a bad start with me. The scent of adrenaline, the heck is that? All right. I, I did, however, and I'm throwing this in here because I was reminded of it when Rich was doing his his synopsis. I did love and hate all of Colonel Ash's dialogue. I mean, that that Paul Jenkins is good, at, specifically good at writing terrible people. And Colonel Ash was was an example of that. You, The tone, everything, you just had your slapping hand ready every time he opened his mouth. So that was good. I'm not saying the whole story. I'm, I, I, it's a combo here. So that, that kind of ruins it for me. The art is too muddy to tell the story. The words physically get in the way as well. And in the end, what should have been a biting tale about the inhumanity of war and the cruel detachment of command just ended up being something that I couldn't wait to stop taking notes on. I will say, rising above all of this, you know, alchemy that I feel just didn't work. Page eight, panel one, was pretty clear and powerful to look at, especially compared to all the other panels in this story. So there was a flicker there for me. And like I said, there were pieces. Again, I feel like that's the theme for me, this issue. The pieces are there. They're not assembled properly to keep me engaged. So that's the last story, people. And as penance for me pooping all over this issue, we're going to roll on to our spotlighted ads because there's no letters page to speak of here. So a spotlighted ads, um, this was a little bit more modern an issue. It's 1997. So one of these ads hit me right where I was living at the time, which was firmly planted in a chair in my parents' basement playing PlayStation 1 games when I should have been doing other things. There is a two-page, like a double-page spread ad for the Wild Arms PlayStation 1 role-playing game. And I got to tell you, the, the ad is, I've played the game. I loved it. I, I could not be separated from it until I finished the thing. But this is a, such a bad ad for for this game it's it's very typical of how they advertised video games back then because quite frankly the ps1 graphics hey everything's got to be in 3d it's got to be polygonal they look terrible <laughs> even at the time you're like i guess that's a person whatever yeah, especially the combat graphics in this game this is a role-playing game that they you know they call it a japanese role-playing game or a jrpg you've played final fantasy you know what i'm talking about Okay, old school Final Fantasy type games. You're on the, you're walking around the overworld, and all of a sudden you hear and music, and you're in a fight. And for most of the game, you're you're in those graphics outside of combat. They're flat 2D sprite-based graphics. They look kind of cute. They look kind of neat. Then you go into combat, and everything is a clunky early polygonal 3D mess. So, 
All that aside, I, like I said, could not stop playing this game. The story was great. It had a theme of like a Western style post-apocalyptic nightmare scape that you were trying to survive. So you had, instead of just swords and, and, and all this kind of stuff, people had firearms. They were wearing cowboy dusters and there were monsters all over the place. Man, this just had my name written all over it. However, this ad is a two-page image of a bunch of columns, stone columns standing in a burning field that's just inexplicably on fire with what looks like more semi-ruined buildings with Roman columns holding them up. It's almost totem poles in, in the uh, in the foreground burning. And then the sky is orange in the background of volcanoes. It's all very apocalyptic. It has nothing to do with the game. Nothing, not a thing. And then there's these tiny little squares little screenshots at the bottom of the pages that are like, here's the game. Isn't it cool? Here's the box it comes in. But we're going to keep these graphics as small as possible on these pages so you don't see how clunky they look. Now, I get it, but maybe you had a perfectly good piece of manga-style anime art on that box that's a tiny little square to the right on the second page. And, you know, for once, this was the start of, like, when they had anime-style art on games, they would actually use it in the American marketing, put it on the box. They'd give you the cool-looking Japanese artwork. Just blow that up and then have the little tiny screenshots and your little blurb, because they have some, you know, trying to sound really badass blurb here that says, unless you can unfold the mysteries of the wasted land, you're going down whether you're ready or not. Okay, that's late 90s attitude. That's fine. And just have that cool image, the title, even the the lettering for the title of the game is great. So, you know, I said I wouldn't be a wet blanket. I did bring a lot of enthusiasm to this, though, because Wild Arms and and the two games that followed it in the series that I played, one of my favorite video games of all time. So I really, I, I got a lot of love for this, but this ad, which I don't think I ever saw in a comic book until this one. Um, it's because this print ad I don't think got put in a lot of comics. Um, and I, I did some looking right before the show, and they're selling this ad on eBay. Some people are charging like five bucks for just these two pages. So that makes me feel kind of old, you know, an ad that is from a game I remember playing when I considered myself to be a young adult is a collectible. But uh, again, it's it's also very typical of a late 90s ad, so I kind of love it anyway in that. It's got some misguided graphic design attempt to look badass when it could just show off the content and look a lot better. But it's trying real hard to be edgy and cool. So there you go. There's some enthusiasm from me in this episode. And that's something, kids. All right. So I'll stop yakking and let Rich tell you about his pretty much, you know, equally awesome spotlighted ad. As previously stated in the first two issues of this miniseries, these comics are ad-thin. But hey, at least we have new ones to select from for issue three. Yet again, it was a bit of a stretch for me to find what I liked. At the end of the day, there was really only one that I could choose. And we all know why. The back cover is the movie poster for Batman and Robin. Say it with me now. Nipple suits. Nipple suits. The movie that was so bad, Joel Schumacher actually apologized for it. Christopher Nolan had no pressure at all when he rebooted the franchise in 2005. Two hours of my life, 
I'm not getting back. And by the way, there's a second full page ad inside the comic shilling the soundtrack for said movie. To be fair, though, the Smashing Pumpkins did win a Grammy for The End is the Beginning is the End for Best Hard Rock Performance. And yeah, I'm sorry, off the top of my head, I don't remember that song at all. So... <laughs> Yeah, I think competition was a bit thin on the field for that great. And besides, why even make a soundtrack to any Batman movie after the first one with uh, Prince? I mean, come on, we're done. That's it. No more Batman soundtracks necessary. Frickin' Prince did the first one. Everyone else could go home. I've seen the future and it will be no more necessary Batman soundtracks. <laughs> so, with that out of the way. Oh, you're welcome. I can just feel that movie. <laughs> this has really been kind of cool in the ad section for me to be haunted again by that vibe of the late 90s because it did have a certain feel to it and you weren't aware of it while it was happening. And you look back and you're like, yep, I know exactly what year that happened. <laughs> so, with all that out of the way, we're going to move on to a little section since there's no letters page that we like to call. Got me last word. Yeah, this was probably one of the darkest comics we've covered on the show. So it's nice mocking the ads gave us a chance to lighten the mood a bit as we depart. New Toys was the only weird story in the book. Thanks for living up to expectations, Grant. But Sniper's Alley and Run not only could have happened, they probably did. Listening to my extended vent on Run, everyone should easily know that it's my favorite story in the issue. This actually might be my favorite redeployment issue. Solid as hell. Already one issue four. All right. Well, just call us the new Siskel and Ebert because we could not have ended up with more different estimations of this here comic book. Grant Morrison's weird was the sort that people who don't like Grant Morrison always accuse them of. Weird for the sake of weird with no clear meaning behind it. I'll pull out of my dive here and just say that for me. This was subpar work by a lot of people who are capable of far better, in my opinion. Three rehearsals being sold to me as ready for Broadway material. It actually makes me a little mad. Did I say I was going to pull out of my dive? I think I'm just flying it straight into the ground. So I'll jump out of my plane that is heading for the, the side of the mountain and take us over to our dead letter office where we, we like to, you know, this is a social part of the show where we like to talk about interacting with our listeners and so forth. Rich has a, a little special interaction to talk about at the top here. Got a few, actually. We got a message from Don Cummins that reads as follows. I have been looking forever for a war comic that depicted a story about a group of soldiers walking along the road that had a bird or raven fly over them. My memory says the story goes that the bird was bad luck, and it follows the adventure of these soldiers as they trudge forward this bird hovering above them. I don't remember if it was Sergeant Rock or our Army at War or another story or character, but I would be really interested if anyone remembers a comic with that storyline. I can actually picture the artwork of the squad slash platoon walking forward with this scenario playing out. Every time I see a raven hovering, I think about this comic. Hoping someone's memory is better than mine. Yeah, I took up the challenge and replied with 99% chance that this is The Bird of Death by John Albano and Alfredo Acala, appearing in Weird War Tales 23, episode 26 of this very show. Go check that album on our Facebook page and included a photo from the splash page. Don replied with, wow, you are good. I'm impressed. Seriously impressed. This story has been in my head for 40 plus years. 
I thought, or I was beginning to think, maybe I'd imagined it. Thank you so much for helping me with this. I joined a Facebook group. I'm not into Facebook, so this was a stretch. The other day, in an effort to clear this out of my noggin, someone on that group messaged me and sent me in your direction. So now I'm going to have to find a mint copy of this and frame it. Maybe a second copy, just to read every now and then. Thank you. So there we go, people. Solving 40-year-old mysteries. Honestly honored to help Don out. He went back and listened to that episode and let us know later that he got the comic in question and probably overpaid for it. Bucky749 gives us another five-star review. I think this is basically called padding the stats, but what the hell. Weird warriors assemble. Join the hosts as they take you back to the past as they go through these weird and wonderful war comics. Then grab your coat and helmet as they become the road warriors and go on an awesome adventure. And let's not forget the special missions. Thanks, Bucky749. Keep this up, and we'll include you in our next promo. And one more thing real quick. That's not on the script. Um, I posted a picture of a certain 90s doofus, quote, quote, on the album. <laughs> and I got a message back from David Steele, who responded with, I was walking around the supermarket listening to this episode, and I laughed way too loud at this moment. Got some funny looks at the ice cream aisle. <laughs> so not to put you on the spot, David, but. It's what we're here for. And what's the expression? Sorry, not sorry. Yeah, I think that's it. That's, that's our good buddy, David Steele from the Earth 2 podcast. Uh, one half of the show, the other half being Peter Watson. But yeah, it's great that you know we made Dave laugh like a maniac in public. That's that's fantastic. Oh, my God. Yeah, and as far as uh, Bucky749 and, and including him in our next promo, I think he should just write the next one. That was pretty good right there, man. <laughs> I got I to gotta tell you, the job doesn't pay much, but, um, you know, we'll, we'll take the work. That's fine. So all that out of the way, we are going to go over to see who stopped by on social media to give us some high fives. So over on the Facebook page for the episode in question here, which covered Weird War Tales number 34, Dave Marshawn stopped by. That maniac in the uh, produce section, David Steele, stopped by. Herschel Memis, Luke Giaconetti, Magazines and Monsters, and with his alter ego, Billy Dunleavy, right on the heels, Lloyd Smith of Blue Moon Comics Group, and Ken Boutillier, my buddy from Florida who did the independent comics in Doggy. Go out, find that, pick it up, read it as soon as you can. Over on Gmail, where you can find us at weirdwarriorspodcast at gmail.com, we got a little missive from our good buddy Jason Zeller, the sole owner and founder of the Jason Seller Binge Listener Award. He wrote in to tell us that as far as Weird War Tales number 34 was concerned, uh, the common enemy for that story, he says, I agree with you, Rich. It was G.I. Joe and A-Team level action with all the point-blank missed shots. And yeah, how many bullets did they have on? And then he goes on to comment on the flying coffin, saying that had some great aerial art and sound effects that made the panels come alive. And I remember that myself, like the sound effects work, which I always appreciate was really well done in that story. And he finishes off with another one that I, I agree with. On the story, To His Rescue Came a Maiden, Jason says, that was actually my favorite story. I'm a sucker for any gothic-type elements like castles and horror stories. And yeah, that brings me right in. All of a sudden, I'm, I'm thinking Hammer movies. I'm, you know, I'm in. Give me, give me some spooky stuff. And you got at least one of my feet in the door. 
Jason finished off by giving us some pictures of his Chessmen Legion of Superheroes set for the Mayfair DC Heroes role-playing game and the Atlas of the DC Universe book for that game, which he just acquired based on my recommendation. So there you go, Jason writing in to show us some pictures of cool stuff and high-five us on that, that issue of Weird War Tales. So that's the Dead Letter Office, everybody. We're going to close it down and seal the crypt. And Rich is going to walk on by and distract you from that morbid proceedings with a teaser for the next episode. Weird War Tales 38. Or where I thought we'd be starting 2023 if we hadn't done a summertime slowdown and an extra special mission or two. Dead Poet Society. Conan the Barbarian. Toy Story 2. What, again? Sounds like movie night at the Weird Warriors podcast. What the hell can it possibly mean? Tune in and find out for yourself. And here's the aforementioned creator spoiler from the retroactive history. I'll give you the outside-the-box one that will have you groaning and throwing up your hands. Don't throw up in your hands. Rod Serling died on June 28th, 1975. So Rich probably wouldn't have remembered meeting me since he was only five years old at the time. None of my work appeared in Weird War Tales, unless you accept that a large portion of WWT were pirated Twilight Zone episodes. I am brought up on this show often via numerous voiceover appearances, and Rich visited my grave at Interlock in New York last year, which was mentioned in episode 15, Twilight Zone episode. I'm obviously more well-known than the other creator, who shall remain nameless until the next episode. And I really hope people aren't still guessing by the time this episode comes out, which is like the end of March or beginning of April. That's it, people. That's the teaser for the next episode. That's the end of this redeployment. Maybe on the next outing, I'll enjoy 1997 a little better than I did this time. But who's who's for sure? Until well, watch, then, you'll love it, and I'll hate it. <laughs> that would be perfect because I think both on board pretty strongly for the first two two issues. And then I was completely soured on this one. And this was a great one for you. And that's how it hits sometimes, you know? Like like I said, I think your analysis based on your your knowledge of what the stories were about enhanced what you were what you were getting out of it. So anyway, we'll see how the redeployment number four goes whenever Rich tells me it's time to go. But until then, this has been the Weird Warriors podcast. I've been Max. He's been Rich. We've been the Weird Warriors. We are the Batman Bros, and we promise to make war. No more.